media tells a barbell story, either the massive successes or the massive failures where there's a billion dollars of fraud and everyone's going to jail. And that's what sells. People want to click on that. People want to read those articles. They'll go in the magazines. No one talks about what happens to 99% of the entrepreneurs 99% of the time, which is just, it's a lot of hard work. I got up early this morning. I put my pants on one leg at a time. I went to my office. I'm working hard. And this is, we're in the 13th plus year of business. Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit, a podcast that sits down with amazing leaders every week to discuss what it takes to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is, both personally and professionally, to build history-making companies. Speaking of incredible companies, we don't do sponsorships on the show. So if you're inspired by the stories of my guests, my call to action is to reach out and let's find a great home for you in the Kleiner portfolio. I spent my Sunday uh, reading the book. You got nothing better to do? And <laughs> I spent my Sunday reading the book and we had a quick call just to be like, all right, are we both ready to tango? Like, is this yeah. what we want to do? We yeah. both agreed to do it. Yeah. And then I said, Freddie, the only thing I'm nervous about is that we're going to run out of time. Yeah. And you said, what do you want? How much time do you want? And I yeah. said, whatever I could get. Well, and you said, we okay, got let's do earnings two next week so. and we got the markets out there and then my CFO might not be able to make it. So we have some complexity. So I was going to push back and then I talked to your wife. Yeah. And she said. Yeah. The two weeks yeah. leading up to earnings, earnings yeah. consider any emotional conversation just unavailable. And so I thought, you know what? If Sarah, Sarah's yeah. your wife's yeah. name, correct? Yeah. Yeah. If Sarah can't get what she needs out of Freddie during that time, maybe I can't either. I'll push for a little extra if You'll I can get it. But anyway, I thought it was, uh, You'll be fine. it did not surprise me that that was happening during uh, yeah. earnings season. Yeah. I know how much it means to you. Well, also the markets are kind of a mess. Kind of a mess. Yeah. So, well, dude, thank you for being here. Sure. Happy uh, to. I got to walk from my office past all of our other offices that we ever had here. Where's your current office? My current office is 101st Street. So it is directly next door to Salesforce Tower. Okay. We have almost all the building. The very first office we ever had, I did not walk by. It was in uh, Jawbone's offices, which was 99 Rhode Island. Uh-huh. So kind of in the fashion district over there, because they gave us a couple desks in the back of that office, very kindly. Our first office where it was in our name was 400 Second Street. So it was right up the street here, Second and Harrison. I walked by it. Then I walked to our next main office that had our name actually on the building, which was 300 Brandon, 301 Brandon. And then we took over the one right next to it on Second Street too. So we ended up having that whole complex. Is that Splunk now, the 301 Brandon? I don't know what's in there now. Crazy. Yeah, so we first we got one floor of that, then we took over three, then we had all six, then we took over the building next door. We had that whole complex, and then we moved it all to 101st Street. So You're I walking actually, down memory lane. I, I literally, did, I got to walk down memory lane uh, on the walk the, over the here. The crescendo of that would be, did you ever pitch KP in this Kleiner no. office? No, but I knew about this office. So rewind back to the future is, a good friend of mine is a guy named Mark Gornberg. He actually hired me. He was one of the managing directors at Hummer Wimblad Venture Partners. He hired me in the summer 2008 to work as a summer intern at Hummer Wimblad. And I saw him for breakfast a couple weeks ago. 
and we were talking about this area, and Hummer Wimblad had an office here on South Park 30 years ago when it was completely different. The Giants weren't here. Then they left. Then it got gentrified, and now everyone's here. I walked by Menlo Ventures uh-huh. was right upstairs. Uh-huh. So I have never, I have seen this office, but I have never been in this office. Well, And we pitched Kleiner, but it was down at Sand Hill. Joke's on us now, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> look, honestly, if I had been the one listening to the pitch, I probably wouldn't have invested either. I just didn't have a choice since I was heavily invested already. Oh, man. Well, dude, it is great to have you. I start all of these things, and we've gotten started, but I guess I formally start all of these things the same way. I will read your background back to you. I will definitely screw something up with the pronunciation of the school that you went to, mm-hmm. and then we'll go from there. Sounds perfect. Okay. You got your BS in France from, you go, I'm not even going to try. No, so I got a French baccalaureate, yep. which is a high school graduation, okay. then some from the Lycée International de Saint-Germain-en-Laye, which is a really good school in the suburbs of Paris. Then you came out here for Stanford to get your BS. You got it. In computer science. You got it. That was in 94. Yeah. Then you did a smattering of jobs for four years from Sun to Applied. Uh, materials. This was anything from an internship to a job. That was four years of that. You moved to Argentina where someone you knew started a company, right? And you were in sales there for a couple of years, basically-ish. Yeah. I mean, so those jobs I had were while I was in school. So oh, you were I, doing those yeah, during Stanford? I was class in 98 and I had most of those jobs while I was in school just to see what was going on in the real world. And then when I graduated, I moved to South America with a couple friends of mine who were starting a high-tech consulting firm and had a cornerstone investor. And I was in charge of running all the technology for the system integration, basically what we were going to sell. Okay, good. So I'm way off. No, Um, you nailed it. That didn't go well. We might revisit that, but that wasn't the best of runs. Uh, I mean, I think the outcome was not what we all (laughs) wanted, but it it went well right until the end. Is what I would say. That's a good Plus, I mean, it was a revolution. <laughs> right. I mean, it was a revolution in Argentina. Right. I mean, you know, sometimes there are macro factors you, yeah. you can't control. Can't control. Yeah. yeah, fair enough. Then you went to Salesforce. This is where you did a bunch of sales and business development type stuff. Yes. Right? Five years of that. Then you went to MIT, you got your MBA. Then you went to Hummer Winblad. No, I worked at Hummer Winblad while I was at MIT. I have over, a bad history of working while being in school. Yes. Overachiever. Then you met Todd at Salesforce, kind of. You guys didn't know each other that well. We didn't know each other that well. Yeah. We, we were professionally familiar with each other. And we actually started Okta second semester, second year at MIT. Wow. You started Okta in May of 2009. Cinco de Mayo. Wow. Yeah. But he was here and I was there. So it's not like we were in some Mexican bar party. We didn't even get to go to Chevy's yeah. together. No, and have we did a, not go to Chevy's. No, no. That's too bad. Yeah. Uh, get the, the sombrero and uh-huh. everything. Yeah. For those listening that don't know, Okta is, man, it's kind of hard to say now, valued at $12 billion today, six months ago, valued at more than $40 billion, has raised over $1.2 billion in funding, one of the darlings of Silicon Valley in more ways than one, 15,000 plus customers. You've been at this since May of 2009. You got it. It's 13 years? Uh, yep. Wow. Who's counting? 13 years. So then, 
during all of this, in the last couple of years, you've done a couple other things. You became the chairman and board of directors, co-founder of, how, how do I pronounce it? Her- Herophilus. Herophilus. Yep. You started the Operator Network, Yep. which is uh, basically a VC that brings in a bunch of operators. We are an angel investment group yeah. because we don't have our own fund. So everyone invests independently in the group. Got it. You are on the member of the executive advisory board for... The Marin Trust Center for MIT Entrepreneurship. Martin Trust Center, yep. Martin Trust Center, yep. yep. Okay, this is going great. And then you're an advisor to Blackstone. Yeah? You got it. Okay, I'm just waiting for you to correct you me. It. No, I was just looking at it. Uh, you're doing great. And then, uh, and, and then you just wrote a damn book. Yep, that's right. Zero to IPO. And you started a podcast in conjunction or leading up to the book? We started a podcast a few years ago that was the ba- a lot of the basis for my thought process behind writing the book, yeah. Well, Freddie, welcome. Thank you. The book is amazing, and I'm not just saying that. Like I said earlier, I spent my Sunday reading it. It is a shame because it's one of those books that I want to give to others. However, my chicken scratch is all over that thing. So The good news is you should buy more copies. All the profits are going to charity, so it's for a good cause. Dude, can I just dive right into the book first? Have at it. And then I want to start unpacking Sounds from there. Sounds great. Okay. The first sentence of the book is, it was July 2011 when I realized I had failed. That's the first sentence of the book. Why did you start the book that way? Incidentally, the rest of that paragraph, that happened right up here, three blocks from where we're sitting today, just so you know. You know, the reason I wrote the book was the field guide that I wish I had had when we started the company. And I think that it's a very lonely place as an entrepreneur to be building companies. I think that the impression that most people have is that these massively successful companies like Amazon or Meta were destined for greatness. And the reality of it is they weren't. They all almost failed dozens of times. Now, no one tells those stories. People like to tell the success stories and glorify the founding CEOs and how amazing Jeff Bezos is and Elon Musk, and now they're creating rockets that are going to the moon. But the reality of it is it's just a lot of hard work every single day. And the whole point of the podcast and then the book was going to find very successful entrepreneurs and having them tell the stories of when it didn't work. When they almost went bankrupt, when they got sued, when they couldn't raise a round, when they couldn't close a customer, when they had to recap the company, to give every aspiring entrepreneur, an entrepreneur out there who's living a lonely existence, they go to these mixers that are set up by Kleiner Perkins. And at the mixers, they ask other people how it's going, and everyone's crushing it. Everyone's crushing it all the time, just crushing it except you. And then you go back to your office, you can't hire anyone, you can't sell product, you can't raise a dollar financing. And that's just not the way it is. It's hard for everyone all the time. And in 2011, we almost died as a company. And so the whole point was, when I gave the man, one of the early manuscripts to my co-founder, he said, all these stories are true stories. Do people realize that? And I was like, that's the point, Todd. So most chapters, most of the important chapters start with me absolutely train wrecking the topic at hand in a real story. And, you know, it's humanizing. That's part of the process. So, by the way, that's why I started this podcast. I was exhausted by successful people coming up on things like podcasts, talking about how successful they are. Yeah. Like the analogy that I like to use, while cheesy, I think it works, is like when I see LeBron playing on TV, I cannot relate in the slightest. There's so much natural ability there. He's 6'10". 
when I see Steph play and I see that he runs more than anybody on the court and I see that he's 6'4 or whatever he is, not like this insane human, I can relate to that. There's just more of a relatable story where I watch this guy like work day in and day out all the time. I don't know why. You tell me, why does nobody tell the story? Why do we feel like we can't tell the real story? That's very simple. It's economics. So media tells a barbell story, either the massive successes or the massive failures where there's a billion dollars of fraud and everyone's going to jail. And that's what sells. People want to click on that. People want to read those articles. They'll go in the magazines. No one talks about what happens to 99% of the entrepreneurs 99% of the time, which is just, it's a lot of hard work. I got up early this morning. I put my pants on one leg at a time. I went to my office. I'm working hard. And this is, we're in the 13th plus year of business. And I understand why that is. It's unfortunate because entrepreneurship is amazing. It's amazing for personal reasons. It's amazing. It's the number one generator of job growth and economic creation in the Western world over the last 50 years. It's replaced all the jobs that we've lost from the dinosaurs, plus all the net new jobs. So there should be a lot more done to encourage open source entrepreneurship, as it were, but it's just, it doesn't sell. There's a quote, and I'm going to come back to this story because I want to double click on it in a bit. But there's a quote that you put in the book that I was hoping we could kind of use as a launching off point. You said, some people say leading a fast, <laughs> some people say leading a fast growing startup is like winning a pie eating contest. The grand prize is that you get to eat even more pie. What do you mean by that? That's actually, I have to attribute the quote properly. That Please. quote is attributable to my friend, Eric Wells. Stanford graduate, a managing partner at Bain Capital. It's a great quote. Or, sorry, Bain and Company. He once told me that quote when he was explaining how the consulting business works. And he said, as a partner at a consulting firm like Bain, my job is to go out and sell projects. And as I get more successful, to sell more projects. The analogy is pretty good for being an entrepreneur. If you're successful, there's just going to be more going on. And there's more coming at you. And if you think about all your stakeholders, your customers, your employees, your investors, your partners, the vendors that you purchase equipment from, success is going to engender more activity. You're going to have to hire more people. You're going to want to raise more money. You're going to try and accelerate the business. You're going to grow international. You're going to go into a different segment, come out with a new product that's adjacent to yours. You're going to go into a different geo. You're going to have to hire different leaders. You're going to scale to the next level of management. It goes on and on and on. It never ends. And in fact, we are right here as a public company. We've been public for five years. We're about to do our 21st earnings call next week. It's just more. And it doesn't end... But you have to be excited about that. And you have to find new ways to reinvigorate what you're trying to do and how you're going to do it. You got to find ways to reinvent yourself. You got to find ways to keep it interesting and entertaining for yourself. You got to find ways you can continue to contribute value. In a lot of cases, entrepreneurs like to learn. So you got to find new ways to learn new things. And I understand why some entrepreneurs like to build companies for three years and sell them. Build a new company, three years, sell it. I understand that. It makes sense to me. It's not what I want to do, but I understand why that happens. If you're going to try and build it for the long term and run it for a long time, you got to get excited about the new challenges and finding those new opportunities for yourself. Your dad was the CFO of six different companies, but as I understand it, came to the States from France with not a whole lot of money in his pocket. Yep. Didn't speak the language. Didn't speak the language. Yep. No passport. And uh, 
No passport? No U.S. passport. Banker, right? Banker from France and built a life here and then a really incredible one. Is it the French thing in you? Why you're so direct? There's something that I really admire about the way that you communicate. And when I listen to the ways that you communicate and when I talk to those that are close to you, I really appreciate the fact that you are undeterred by what social stigmas may exist around communication and you just say what it is that exactly that you think. Is that cultural or has that been developed over time? Uh, Well, first of all, I got to give my mom lots of credit too. She doesn't get credit here because she was the one who actually raised me and my brother and my sister. And if it weren't for her, we wouldn't be having this podcast. So yes, my father certainly taught me a lot about entrepreneurship, about agency, about hard work. I wouldn't say, I don't think he would say that communication is his forte. I would say that he's a quiet leader. My mom is a great communicator on the other hand. So if we're going to talk about communication, it probably has something to do with that. Time is short. If no one reads anything else in the book, I put the three most important things on the first two pages so they can walk away and they're done. And it's like, okay, well, at least he got something out of it. Or they're browsing it in the bookstore or at the airport. They can read those two pages, 60 seconds, and they'll walk away. And the number one thing is time is your most precious asset. When you're younger, when I was younger, I had much more time than I did money. Now that is inverse. I got a lot more money than I do time. And you realize as you grow in your career, as you grow professionally with your family, that that time is fleeting and it's not coming back and you can't get it back. I think about that a lot. I am not too deep in all the self-organizational books that are out there on four-hour work weeks and all these other things. Like, I I don't know how that works. Maybe someone's even better at time management than I am, apparently, if they can have a whole week in, in four hours. I can't. But I do think a lot about how I spend my time. I think a lot about prioritization. I update my priority list. I probably update it five times today, and it's the middle of the day. It's on all my devices. It's everywhere. I have a little notebook I walk around with so that if I'm talking to you in a conversation, I'll pull out my notebook and make a note. But it's clear that I'm not getting on my phone and like texting someone where you're like, this is what, why is he doing that? So just optimizing on what I need to do right now, long-term projects, short-term projects, tactics. And as a result, I think that you can get a lot done by being polite, but direct. And I don't know, it's served me well in building very good relationships with a, a lot of fantastic people. Isn't it a weird paradox when you have time, you want money, and you keep chasing this entire thing around money. By the way, it usually takes a long time to get to the money. So you've already wasted a lot of time just to achieve this like ephemeral thing that you think is gonna be enduring. And then now you have money, and now all you want is your time. One exercise that I think about is like when you're on your deathbed, yeah. you want your bank account to just have a bunch of zeros in it? Yep. Like you'd pay an exorbitant amount of money for a very finite amount of time. Isn't that a weird thing? Absolutely. There's a, there are a lot of books written about that. Is this something you struggle with or is it something that you think back on? Like, I can't believe this whole time I spent wanting money. And maybe you didn't, but it's just a weird thing that most people, I think, live their life going through and realizing, shit, I'm going to get that and then I'm going to want those last 10 years back of the time. Well, that's true. If you have mentors or you have friends who've gone through it before or you have family relatives you can talk to or you have other people or you just read. There's a lot of books on the topic. That's exactly right. If you go through the list of what people want on their deathbed, it's like they wanted more time with their family. They wanted more time to do the things they wanted. They wanted all these other things. They never say they wanted more money. There are very good books written about this. There's a very good quote from the former CEO of Coca-Cola who said, look, there's 
work, family, emotional and cultural development, and a couple others. Other Those other balls, work will always bounce back. If you drop it, it'll always come back. By the way, there's infinite amounts of work. Always there's infinite amounts of work. Those other balls, if you drop them, sometimes they'll break. It'll be really hard to get them back. Friendship, family, spouse, kids, emotional well-being, physical well-being, all these other things. And then you can read stories like, you know, a good one is the recent book about the Sackler family, Purdue Pharma and OxyContin. If you read Sackler's life, the original Sackler, the guy just worked too much. He worked all the time. He had multiple families. And it was clear that like in the end, he wasn't, he didn't seem to me, I never met him, but it didn't seem to me in reading the materials that he was a very happy person. You compare that to like Albert Einstein, who could have inherited his dad's electricity business, had a good electricity business in the early 1900s, starting to electrify a lot of the cities in Northern Italy. Good business, would have made a little money, would have been fine. And Albert Einstein was like, why would I waste my time doing that and chasing that? I got these grander visions of these things I'm going to do. I'm not just going to spend my time every day just being like on a little treadmill. And those are two very good examples of the dichotomy that I've read recently. I ask younger folks in their career, what's your three-year plan? Not your one-year plan, not your five-year plan. One year is too short. Like that's going to be here before you know it. Five years too long. Things change too fast in technology. They change in your life. You might meet someone. Who knows? What's the three-year plan? And you should always have a very good answer for what the three-year plan is. Don't you think if you draw the priority matrix, I call it the priority matrix. I've been doing it my whole life, at least my whole career, my whole working life. I didn't even know it was called the Eisenhower matrix until I read it in your book. Don't you think that as you go through the list of values that people know, isn't the stack rank pretty well understood in the sense that don't you think most people know that when they're on their deathbed, they won't wish they worked more? However, when they do their priority matrix, work almost always seems to be at the top of their priority list. That's hard because I have a sample set of one, which is me. And yeah. number two, the only things I know about people on their deathbed largely I've read right. that other people have talked about. Right. Work always is my priority. It always has been. But I know like later on in life, I'm going to regret working so much. Like I know that. Are I, you? I think so. Why do you think that? Well, I guess because work, I care so much and it, it brings me a lot of like anxiety and stress. That's why. Because I give a shit so much, it's like the best gift that I've ever had, but it's also the most pain. It's the one thing that I feel like I'm always chasing, that it, there never is an end date to. With at least the other things in my stack rank, at least I know that there's a family there and that I can invest in that family. And it is the process of investing in that family that's going to bring me that joy. With work, it always seems to be outcome oriented. With the other things in my stack rank, it's not the same way. Like with my physical fitness, I'm not aiming for a certain weight on the scale. I'm doing it because I enjoy sweating. For work, I do not feel that way. And so I say that I'm going to regret it mainly because I think I work so much, it makes me anxious. Yeah. Let me tell you a good fable that I recently read. There's an American businessman, goes to Latin America on a fishing trip, and he meets the captain of the boat that he's going fishing on. And the captain of the boat only works a few hours a week, and the American businessman says, why don't you work more than a few hours a week? What do you do? And the, the fisherman says, oh... I sit in the sun and I play my guitar and I drink the wine and I sleep in. And the American businessman said, well, why don't you work harder? If you worked harder, you could make some profit. You could buy more boats. You could have more captains. You could do all these other things. 
And the fisherman says, well, what for? And the American businessman says, well, so that you could sleep in and sit in the sun and drink the wine and play your guitar. And the point is, the fisherman's already got it. So we do have this cultural mindset in the United States and in Western Europe, in some civilizations, not necessarily in France, which I'm happy to talk about too. And there's a lot of benefits to it. it drives the economy, half the world's economy is in the United States. But, you know, if you go look at the studies of happiest nations on earth, United States never there. By the way, I don't know how they rank that, but somehow they rank that. Bhutan is always at the top. Turns out in Bhutan, they think about death on average three to five times a day. In fact, it's recommended in Bhutan. I've never been there, but I've read plenty about it. Now, again, I don't know how they characterize a stack rank of the happiest nations, but on average, the average Bhutanese person is the happiest on earth, and they think about death all the time. And I think that'll probably drive your behavior in a much different way than if you don't. Well, maybe we need to do a field trip to Bhutan. Okay, I have some more questions for you, personal stuff. Is that okay? Can I? Great. So you mentioned in the book, like you have some particular habits that you stick to. One of them is hockey. You like to go play hockey. What is not mentioned in the book is that on one of the two nights that you play hockey, it's like an 11 p.m. till 2 a.m. game. Is that number one? Is that true-ish? Is it like a late night game? It is because ice is very limited. And so the adult leagues either play very early. Sunday mornings, my game are at 6 a.m. or 7 a.m. Yeah. Or very late. My Tuesday and Wednesday games will tend to start at 8.30, 9, sometimes 10, 15. Yeah. Which means the game's like an hour and a half. It's 11.45. And you're probably not sleeping at least two and a half hours after the game just because you're flying around hitting people and you're all jacked up on adrenaline, which means in that case, yeah, you're going to sleep at 2 a.m. I hear you park the car that you drive around the corner. I was told that when you go there, you don't park your car with the rest of the guys. And when I heard that, my mind went to a very specific reason why. Well, that that used to be the case with my old car. Today, I drive a Toyota Tacoma. And so I do park it with all the other what guys. Was the, what was the old car? Uh, it was a, a nice car. A nicer car. A nicer car. Than a Toyota Tacoma. Why didn't you park it there? You know, ice hockey is great and it's one of my true passions. There's a lot of really great things about ice hockey. One of them is in these locker rooms, you're just a, a player on the team. And on the bench, you're just a player on the team. And it doesn't matter who you are, what company you run, what you did today, where you're from. It's about like how you're performing on that team. And in particular in ice hockey, there are people who don't necessarily have the most glamorous jobs, but they might be the best ice hockey player. And yeah, I just like being one of the members on the team. And it's a great place where I can go and not think about what's going on in my life for an hour and a half. Because if you're not totally locked into that game, I'm not the best hockey player. I'm a good hockey player. I'm not the best. If I'm not totally locked into that game, bad things are going to happen. Your skull's going to get blasted. Bad things are going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what I thought you would say, yeah. which is like, this is your refuge and anything you can do to nurture this sanctuary of Freddie being one of the guys, not Freddie being the co-founder of Okta, yeah. is probably a really good thing for you to just be present and step away from things. And it's the last place that you want to remind anybody else of what you do for work because you just want to be a hockey player with the guys getting treated the same way. Yeah, and there are a lot better hockey players on that team. 
And so I'm hoping that I can just stay on the team and they don't kick me off for getting too old and yeah, totally. slowing down. It's funny. In the Michael Jordan documentary, when he talks about going to, the, to baseball, when he went to the MLB, he talks a lot about like it's actually the happiest he's been in his career because he wasn't the most dominant guy in the sport and they just treated him like every other dude in the locker room. And he said that that feeling, he missed that feeling where people didn't treat him differently and at some point all he craved was being treated like everybody else. So it resonates. I get it. All right, one more question. I've heard that you, to this day, for a lot of things, write letters or personal notes. Is that true? I do write notes. I do. I do send notes. I don't know if you know how much it means to the people in your life that you just write these notes, but apparently you have a pretty busy schedule. To your point, time is pretty much the most important thing that you do. Why do you go out of your way for little things that were meaningful to you? to write a note down, to let someone else know how much that meant to you. Why do you do that? You know, I think personal relationships are everything to me. They're super important. I value them a lot. As humans, interacting with others and being part of the community and part of society is super important. And so it's something I invest a lot in. And I think that's probably just one of those things. I end up always having an endless list of phone calls also that I need to make of people I need to call or notes I need to send or a lot of times they probably aren't necessary like they aren't mandated or required but it's just the right thing to do I think it's really cool man can you take me back to where you started the book in July of 2011 can you bring the audience to the board meeting and that this is what that was referring to right that board meeting yeah I actually got thrown out of two board meetings in a row <laughs> And, was this the first or the second? Uh, that was the first. <laughs> and then people have been confused. And they say, you got thrown out of a board meeting twice? I said, no, no, no. These are two sub- subsequent board meetings I got thrown out of. Yes, I did get thrown out of. I was excused from that board meeting. And I was excused from the next board meeting as well. Probably because a disagreement that I had with the investors at the time. You know, I was certainly obviously younger and learning and self-confident and believed I knew better because I was spending my days and nights and weekends doing this. And so thought I had better insight. I probably didn't appreciate the value that operators who had seen the movie before could bring. And I probably wasn't as good of a listener. And I probably didn't have the growth mindset I'd like to think I have today, or at least I have more of today. So certainly there were some disagreements And I was asked to leave the conversation. And at this time in July-ish of 2011, the business had missed the number by 70%. Yeah, that's right. The projection. That was June 30th, 2011. That's right. June 30th. Yeah. And you were responsible for revenue. Yeah, that's right. Uh And you walked into the meeting and nobody had any idea. The board, so this was after your Series A. Yeah, it was actually, we were trying to raise a Series B. In fact, we had a term sheet that had been, we had our first term sheet. I didn't know that. Yeah, we had our first term sheet for Series B. And this is June 30th, 2011. At the time, our quarters were calendar year quarters. Now they're one month delayed, as many public software as a service enterprise companies are. But at the time, it was calendar quarter. So this was the end of Q2, June 30th, 2011. And uh, I got a phone call from the lead investor who was providing the term sheet. And he said, how's it going? I said, oh, you know, it's going okay. And he said, well, what's the quarter looking like? You know, it's the afternoon of the 30th. You probably have some idea. 
And I said, yeah, yeah, we're going to miss by 70%. And he said, 17%? I said, no, 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 70%. And there was silence. And he said, I'll be there in 60 minutes and hung up the phone. And he drove up really fast from Sand Hill Road and walked in yelling and screaming. And anyway, he ended up not pulling the term sheet. And many years later, must have been 2016, it was right before we were going public, 2016, he ended up obviously investing in the round and leading the Series B and so forth. And he said to me, hey, next time you're down in my neighborhood, this is 2016, five years later, come by and visit. I said, oh, sure, sure. And they had a new office. So I went down and visited because I was in the area. And he said, hey, sit down. I want to tell you a story. I said, oh, sure. That sounds good. So I sit down and he said, do you remember your series? I said, yeah. I mean, these, you know, these dates and events are seared into my memory. I remember exactly where I was, what time it was of the day. And he said, well, you know, I got to tell you that I didn't pull the term sheet because I was newer in my investing career and I was worried that it was going to be a bad mark on my investing career. And I decided that it was better for me to lose the money that I was about to invest in your company than pull the term sheet and have that be one of my first events. I said, is that right? He said, yeah. So actually, like I assumed the money was gone. And, you know, we made this gentleman's fund as we did all the early investor funds. And he said, so I just want to say thank you. <laughs> and I said, well, you're welcome. You know, I thought that we'd convinced you to do the round anyway. And he, you know, ultimately had nothing to do with us. And I think, you know, that message is a very important one for entrepreneurs to realize so many times, so many things are happening that they don't know about that you cannot internalize all these things that happen with external third parties because sometimes they have nothing to do with you. And you just happen to be wrong time, wrong place, right time, right place, whatever the dynamics are. So optimize what you can't optimize, but realize things are going to happen anyway. And, you know, lucky is better than good. And to be clear, this was not an opportunistic Series B term sheet. This was like, uh, we're running out of money. We were on the like path. Like you needed this term we sheet. We needed that term sheet. There was not a bunch of other term sheets sitting behind that term sheet. And you didn't get a Series B. Like you were, like your runway was quite limited. It was quite limited. If we had not raised capital that summer, we were going to have to find a way to sell the assets of the company. And then did you get kicked out of the board meeting? Yeah, yeah, it was right around that time. So, so that raised the Series B and then concurrently missed it by 70%. The Series A investor, which is Andreessen Horowitz, right? That's right. The board excused you. The board, excuse me, there was uh, Andreessen Horowitz, there was another outside investor. It was a week or two after that because it was after the close of the quarter when yeah. we were very clear that it was actually going to be a 70% miss. Are you grateful for that? I don't know how else to say that. Like in, in some weird way, isn't that one of the best things that happened to the business? Yeah. So that is one of the best things that happened to the business. I'm not grateful for that experience. <laughs> Let me be really clear. <laughs> I was pretty sure I was going to get fired from my own company. I had no idea what else I was, you know, what else I could do to save the situation. I went home and told my wife, I think I might get fired from my company. Now she was at the end of residency. It was one of those months where she was working nights all the time. So she didn't, she was tired. She didn't know what was going on. I remember looking at me and saying, you're employable though, right? You can get another job. I said, yeah, yeah, I can get another job. But are you listening to what I'm saying? She said, yeah, yeah, it sounds fine. And you know, she went to bed. So <laughs> it, it was not a, I'm, I'm not thankful for that experience. What did you feel like? Oh, How shitty? How shitty did terrible. you feel? Terrible. It felt terrible. 
It's a very lonely place. There's no one you can talk to. No one really wants to talk. You think everyone wants to talk to you and be there and be supportive. But when you're in that situation, no one really wants to talk to you. They don't really want to hear you call on the phone and be like, I'm totally screwed. Here's what's going on. People are like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, no, I'm here for you. But no one really wants to hear that story. It's a pretty lonely place. And by the way, my co-founder wasn't feeling much better. So it's not like I could call him and complain. Because he's like, yeah, yeah. Well, I was still in the board meeting when they threw you out, right? <laughs> you should hear what they said when they yeah, did throw you out. Exactly. So I'm glad we can sit here and laugh about right, it now. But, right. you know, I was ta- much taller and better looking before that board meeting than yeah. I was afterwards. Yeah. For sure. And I know it's kind of surprising because I'm pretty tall and good looking now. So imagine. <laughs> I was thinking the same Rewind thing. 11 years. I can't. Hard to believe. I can't. Yeah. I can't. Then what? Like, what did that trigger? What did that catalyze for you? Did it make you realize like, all right, I am not the leader that I thought I was to run revenue for this company? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, a lot of things. I mean, I think that strategically at a cultural level, we had not done a good job of being as transparent as we could with these other 20 amazing people we'd hired that we had at the company. So, you know, one thing we had to do is just kind of open the kimono and just say, hey, you know, at the following all hands, hey, we need to change our approach. Things are not going well. Here's what's going on. Here was the projections. Here's the actual revenue. If anyone's got ideas, we're open to them. That didn't go particularly well. One of our top engineers was like, that's great. I quit. And then everyone was like, whoa, that person's quitting. Like maybe this whole thing's going down. So there was definitely some, that was not without its own pain. Uh-huh. But I think that started, it started to change our approach. And still today we do all hands with the company 40 times a year. I mean, I tell younger employees, when you join the company, if you go to one of our all hands with your first quarter, if you go to all 10 or 12 all hands that are going to be there and you listen carefully, you basically will know everything about the business after one quarter. I mean, more so than I think any other company that's out there today. So that's still something we do because there's a lot of very smart people you hire. You just want to give them a lot of information, push that information down, those decisions down and get them to run with it. That was a very different situation back then. So Culturally, I think it was because we didn't die, we were able to improve a lot. And I think communication transparency, that certainly improved. But I think also just, you know, the tactics were very good. Yeah, we needed to hire a head of engineering. Couldn't just be Todd. We needed to hire a real head of sales. Couldn't just be me. I mean, I closed the first 10 or 20 customers as the sales rep, but that wasn't going to scale. And now we had sales reps. And I never had a job where I was managing dozens and dozens of sales teams and all these other things. So, you know, it was time to bring in the professionals. So that was a wake-up call. I don't know if I heard this from somewhere. There was a holiday party the night of one of the... That's true. What what is... I don't know the story. That's true also. In fact, Todd and I were just joking about that yesterday. Todd, Todd, your co-founder. Todd Todd McKinnon, my co-founder, and I were just joking about that yesterday. Yeah, there was a holiday party the night of one of those board meetings. So I got thrown out of the board meeting again. I was going for a walk and I was like, you know, this is really the end. And... Ben ended up calling me and we talked about it a little bit, but clearly I was not feeling really good. We had a holiday party that night. I was overserved, and we were handing out rugby jerseys. For the first thousand employees, we handed out a rugby jersey with their employee number on the back. And we were handing out rugby jerseys. And as it was told to me later, I ended up giving quite interesting commentary on each of the jerseys and each of the people as I was handing it out. <laughs> Certainly, it was uh, not my finest moment. It was just kind of a bad day. The bad start to the day, bad end to the day. It's just not a good day. I think it was, if I'm not mistaken, I think it was Friday, December 9th, 2011. Wow, these are like, uh, you still wear these. Well, we need to check the calendar, but I'm pretty sure it was, might have been December 8th. I think it's December 9th. 
So then things start to like feel a little bit better, right? You raise the series B, the business starts to work. It's interesting because I've heard you describe it as a pivot when you started to realize that in fact, that the the down market strategy was not serving the business the best way. Correct. You needed to go up market. I've actually never heard of go to market targeting segmentation be used as a business pivot the way that you described it in the book. Absolutely. But it was a business pivot. For sure. Pivoted the go to market motion, which was really basically pivoting the business up market. Things start to go well. Then there was an outage with Okta. Was that before when was that? Well, the, there's a number of them, but the one I think you're referring to happened in early 2012. We had closed our Series B. Things were actually going well. We actually got through that one okay. But again, you learn a lot of things. You start to learn how what critical infrastructure you are for your customers. Just things start to change when that happens. The worst situation is if you have an outage and none of your customers call. Because <laughs> they don't give a shit. Because they don't give a shit because it's not that important. And that's a problem. So if, that, if you are an entrepreneur and that happens to you, if you have a major outage and it is not a crisis with your customers, you need to like think. Yeah, maybe you don't have product market fit. Or it's just not as critical as you'd like to think it is. And you just really need to think about how you can offer even more critical services and products to your customers. So we did survive that one. How slow is time moving when Okta is down? Oh, I mean, it's, you know, fortunately we've gotten a lot better with resiliency and so forth, but... I mean, those are the worst. Like, you can't do anything. There's nothing you can do. Any questions you're asking, what I learned very quickly was don't ask the people who are trying to fix it anything because they're going to answer my question because I'm the co-founder of the company, but all it's doing is slowing down the progress. It's like closing a deal at the end of the quarter. The more you ask the rep, the less you're really helping them do anything. That's exactly right. But you're asking the question because you feel the need to be in control of what's going on and information is your, That's right. your access point to control. And your cell phone is just ringing nonstop. And it's like phone call after phone call. And it's the customers calling you. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the people mad that are calling you. Super mad. And there's nothing you can do. Yeah. One of the things that I love is I can sit with you here today. We can have an honest reflection about how hard it is, how hard it is, and how taxing it is along the way. You went through Heathrow eight times in one week. Is that right? That's a true story. So because you were flying to so many places in Europe, you had to go through Heathrow. You know, I probably could have done it differently. Yeah. But- that was what made the most sense. And so I actually kept my hotel room at the Hilton that's at the end of that express line from Heathrow into the city. There's a Hilton in that terminal. And I kept that hotel room the entire week so that I only had to bring one of the things with me wherever I was going. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Talk about glory. So then you start finding your mojo again, right? Like you feel like, okay, we have a badass product. Nobody can compete with us. There's a story that you tell that I thought was very vulnerable and authentic where you walked into a customer where the POC had just ended and basically they asked, why should we go with you? And I think you responded something the like of, because we're the best. Am I recharacterizing that wrong? Yeah, that was, it was, I think the story that you're referring to. It's in the book. Yeah. So it's about sales culture, right? It's yeah. about culture. Basically how you were too arrogant. Yeah, yeah. So that was, it was earlier on. Things were not yet cruising. Okay. Things were going better, but were not yet taking off. And we had a competitor at the time that was a on-premises piece of software 
that we knew we could compete with pretty well. And I knew this was my competitor in this deal. And the customer called and said, hey, we're making a decision. We'll call you guys back next week. And I said, oh, that's great. And the team looked at me. I said, this is going to be great. We're going to win the business. And then the customer called and said, we've decided to go with the other guy. And I had the sales rep in there and everyone was excited. It was going to be a big win. It's like a 3,000 person company in, in Louisiana. And I was very excited about it. And I said, excuse me? And he said, yeah, yeah, we decided to go with the other guy. And I said, are you sure you have the right number? Like maybe you're confused. Like you're talking to me at Okta, not the other guy. And he said, no, 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 I'm really clear. And later on, I ended up talking to that guy and I said, well, what happened? And he said, well, here's what happened. What happened was as we were wrapping up the POC, your thing worked and the other guy's thing worked. And you said to me, well, who else am I competing with? And I told you, and you said something like, well, that's great. We love competing with them because we beat them every time. And he said, look, you're both young companies. That's not the attitude I'm looking for in a partner for some pretty critical infrastructure that I'm kind of taking a bet on. And he's taking a bet on his career and so forth as well. And so it was a really good learning moment. And we have tried, we've really tried not to be arrogant. And I'm sure that there will be customers who listen to this podcast who will call me and say, you guys are still very arrogant. I'm, I have no doubt. And I apologize ahead of time. And I'm happy to take your phone call. You have my phone number. But in general, I think we have tried to have a much more consultative relationship with our customers than we did up front. In the book, you talk about how the race basically never ends. The way that you framed it was that the challenges just get bigger and more complicated. And when you and I briefly chatted before this, I asked you, what do you suck at? What's something that shows up on your reviews or whatever? And, and you said, look, I, I suck at energy management. And so I started putting these two things together. And it's your 14th year, whatever it is. And in the book, you said, it's a marathon, not a sprint, but you still have to run a seven-minute mile. Which is fast, for those who don't know. That's a really fast marathon. Yeah, it's a really fast, a really fast marathon. Would you do this again? Knowing what you know today, would you do it again? Well, yes and no. I would because entrepreneurship's amazing. That's why I'm building this neurotherapeutics company. That's why I love helping entrepreneurs. That's why I took a phone call from an entrepreneur who I didn't invest in this morning on my way to the train station just because I knew he needed some help. I think it's great. I think the energy that a lot of people have is phenomenal. I know the energy I had when I started was great. The reason I wouldn't is because you have to dedicate at least five years of your life to nothing more important than building this company. Probably 10 years sometimes, maybe more, but at least five years. You got to write off five years. I will be gone for the next five years. You have to be willing to make that commitment if you're trying to build a large independent company. And I'm not willing to do that. I actually, I'm very happily married. I actually like my wife. I have three kids who I love. I mean, a lot of people don't like their spouses and their kids. That's fine. I actually really do. And I'm not willing to write off the next five years. You'll never get those back. I won't get those back. And I still have children who are young enough that they will listen to what I say and like to hang out with me and are excited when I'm around. I know I've heard that this changes later on when they go to high school and so forth, but I won't have that opportunity again and I'm not willing to give it up. Is it what you thought it would be when you were getting going? Like when you were starting with Todd, seven minute miles don't feel good. 
most of the time. That's right. They do not feel good. I've run them. Yeah. I, ha- I haven't even. I've tried. They, they don't feel good. Yeah. They're really hard. And the whole time, you're just thinking, I can't wait for this to be over. Yeah. I'm not saying that's how you felt. But that's what I think of when I think of running. I'm, like, I'm a runner. I think it was we're better off that I didn't know yeah. at the beginning what I didn't know. And it's hard to say in hindsight what you would have done differently and so forth. I think it's been a great experience. I think it's changed my life personally, professionally. I've learned a ton. I've gotten to meet some fantastic people. I built some great relationships with stakeholders, investors, customers, employees that are amazing. So I, I don't think I knew. You know, we had some dream. You have some vision and some dream, but I, I probably couldn't have painted 24 months ahead mm-hmm. when we started. A lot of people listening, a lot of the entrepreneurs that come into Kleiner, a lot of people that listen to the show, what you've done, what Okta has done is the gold standard of what everyone aspires to achieve. Similar to, I'm sure, when you left Salesforce, Salesforce was the gold standard of what you thought the best could look like. When you've reached this summit that many would describe as a summit, I've heard it be said that it's a lot colder than you think it will be when you get there. Did you experience that? Absolutely. So one of the challenges that I have found is when you, there's a lot of amazing thing about entrepreneurship. You know, you get to plant a flag. You get to say, I'm going to go climb that really tall mountain. I'm going to build an amazing team. We're going to put it together. We're going to go climb the mountain. And then once we plant the flag on it, we're going to find another mountain and so on and so forth. Some of the worst days and weeks I had were right after we went public because we'd been targeting this thing And even going public was great, but it was even more a story that everyone wanted to buy into. And the employees were excited about it and the the investors were excited about it. And, you know, now customers could feel confident they made the right decision and taken a gamble on us because now we're a public company. But after it happened, I turned around, we went public on a Friday and on Monday morning, I was on a sales call at 7 a.m. with a big bank in Europe trying to sell them software. So literally nothing had changed. And it took me a couple of weeks to realized that and it was just a huge letdown. I got super bummed out. My body got really tight. I ended up blowing out my hamstring in a hockey game like a month later just because my body was so tight and jacked up and I couldn't relax and it didn't feel really good. And like that we went public in April of 17. In June of 17, I ended up tearing one of my hamstrings and took like seven months to rehab it, nine months to be back to full I mean, so that was, then it's even worse because then you're like, great, this happened. Now I can't even go skate. <laughs> and like skating was the worst. I mean, I heard it pop in a game. So the night before our first earnings call. <laughs> so our CFO at the time, Bill Losh, an amazing man, was like, hey, you have a hockey game tonight? I was like, yeah. He's like, we have earnings call. First earnings call tomorrow. I said, it's going to be fine. Don't worry about it. I play hockey every week. I walk in limping. He's like, what happened? I was like, I don't know, but I went pop. And sure enough, you know, I ended up blowing it. And it was just like a sad moment because we teed everything up and gotten so excited about it, but it was just another day. And what you realize is you just go back to work the next day. So, you know, a lot of folks listening are going to be like, that's crazy. But it was definitely a lonely time because you also realize you have to move the goalposts for everyone else now again. I'm like, what's the next goalpost? And so we tried doing that. I think we did a good job of starting to do that before we went public and telling everyone, look, we're going to go public. We don't know exactly when. The window will be open at some point. We're filing all the paperwork. Like, we'll be public. We need to think about what's going to happen next. How do we get to a billion dollars of revenue? How do we get to two? 
so forth. And let's think about that. We've done a pretty good job of changing that talk track inside the company, but I don't know that I'd really internalized it. Yeah, I mean, you know, what do they say? Uh, it's lonely at the top. I highly encourage all entrepreneurs to find peers and ideally peers who are a little ahead of them in the trajectory who they can build relationships with. Not transactional relationships where it's like every time the phone rings, I know someone wants something from me. Remember to answer end all of your phone calls with how can I help you or start all your phone calls with how can I help you? Hey, Jubin, how can I help you? There's, I got some questions for you, but first, what can I do to help you? And that way, at least people realize that you're trying to build a two-way relationship because you're going to need a lot of that advice and a lot of those, a lot of that experience. As much as you can get before it happens to you, the better off you'll be. Yeah, going back to my earlier comment, when you asked me, like, why do you wish you could work less when you're older? And I said, well, there is no end in sight. And that gives me anxiety because my hill to climb does not have a summit. There's no peak, right? Do you think that the empty feeling that came after the IPO was because at least you could find solace for the first six to eight years or however long it was before the IPO building the company that you knew that that hill that you were climbing, there was some peak. Now, did you know that peak was going to make you not happy or like make you feel the same? Maybe, maybe not. But do you think that emptiness came from like, well, shit, at least I knew the hill. The emptiness came from the fact that it wasn't that important to me. Mm -hmm. And that it was just super important to all these other people. And so I had to live this story about how important it was and how amazing it was and all the text messages I got and all the, but it, that wasn't the driver. Like I didn't do it for the IPO. It's a, you know, we talked about it earlier. It's you won the pie eating contest. Guess what? More pie. Now you also get to do quarterly earnings reports and get on that treadmill. So it's just adding more complexity. It's fine. I've learned a lot as a public company officer and I built some amazing relationships with a whole new stakeholder base of long-term shareholders. And that's been great. But you have to really buy into the things that you're going to build towards. And so you have to be able to answer the question why you're doing it. And I don't think there's any end to that question either. But I think just having that in mind and taking an opportunity, whatever that is, you like to go hiking for the day by yourself. You like to turn off your phone at night. You like to whatever where you can, you like to play guitar, do something else where you can have a little distance, ideally for multiple days in a row. I think I've seen myself that when I go backpacking, it really has to be at least three nights because it's only in the, after the second night, the third day of no communication that your brain actually starts to think about different things. Whatever that is for folks, I highly encourage you to do that, especially if you're going to be on the marathon. And I really appreciated like part of the book, the field guide was not a field guide to how to execute and run a great B2B SaaS business. It was also a field guide on like, how to do things like you had just described around work-life balance. The way that you talk about it is work-life integrations. Bezos describes it as work-life harmony. I agree, work-life balance is not a good way of framing it. The things that you do that you mentioned that I want to just dig into, home every night for dinner unless you're traveling with your wife and your children. You leave your phone on the... on the Entranceway, yeah. Yeah, when you walk in. You don't take work calls on the weekends. That surprised me, is that right? Yeah, I mean, there'll be an exception. Yeah. Maybe once a quarter. That's how infrequently the exception I don't is. take phone calls on the weekends. At this point, we're yeah. a public company. I have 5,000 employees. It's, it's a billion and a half revenue business. It's growing 50%. If people can't do things at this point in the company without calling me on the weekend, we have much bigger problems yeah. than whatever they're calling me about. I also thought it was cool when you were traveling as much as you were, you would plan your work schedule around hockey games. Yes. In the sense that like you would invite customers, like that would be the thing that you do. 
Yeah, not only that, so that's definitely true. And that works out great because then I get to watch a game and I would bring customers and prospects and investors and put them all in the same box and just have them talk because that's what they really want. I mean, they want to talk to me, but they really want to talk to each other. Have the customers sell the prospects, have the investors ask both of them why they're buying it, like the whole nine yards. And I get to watch an amazing hockey game. That's true. But also I've done crazy things like had a business meeting in Las Vegas, fly home to play in a hockey game and leave at 6 a.m. the next morning to like fly to Seattle when I could have just flown from Vegas to Seattle. Or I have had two plane tickets in the same day to come home from somewhere. And if my team makes the next level of the playoffs and I have to be home for the earlier game, I'll take the earlier flight and leave my bag (laughs) in the back of my pickup truck at the airport. I mean, this has happened the last month because we made the finals. So you have to prioritize those things. Right. And you have to just be really clear on what you are optimizing on. And again, it's, you know, you're playing the long game. Is this what you meant in the book when you talked about the oxygen mask rule? Yeah, absolutely. Can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah. When you fly, I know none of us ever listened to it, but up front, the main flight attendant gives a security presentation at the beginning, basically saying, look, there's an emergency exits. And also in the case of emergency and, and the air mask drops from the ceiling and you're flying with someone who's dependent on you like a child, first put the air mask on yourself before putting it on the child. Because obviously if you put it on the child and you're passing out, like it's not going to work well. And the same is that's a, it's a very good analogy to building a business because you need to make sure you're taking care of yourself or there won't be any of you left to do all the other things. So everyone else who depends on you in the business, all those stakeholders, other groups, there's not going to be anything left. And so you're not going to be able to, you're not doing them a service by giving everything out. And so that took me a long time to learn also. I probably have not been the best at that, frankly, but it is a very important lesson too. There's another thing that I wanted to bring up with you that really hit home for me. I don't know if this was in your office, but the quote, nothing happens until you sell something. Nothing happens until somebody sells something. And I think that one comes from Watson, the original founder of IBM, if I'm not mistaken. And it is a great quote. It is more important today than it ever was because the CEO of yesteryear was a salesperson. The CEO of today and tomorrow is a technologist. Technologists know a lot about technology. They don't know that much about go-to-market and GNA, general and administrative, which are all the back office functions, which are really important to building a company. You need all those pieces, but those are tractable problems. And so if you know what to do, you can get in front of that. In particular, many times I talk to brilliant technology founders who are sitting in effectively an ivory tower building what they think the future needs without asking anyone about it. You need to go ask people because you need their input. You're trying to build something. That's the number one problem. Number two problem, if they get beyond that and they're like, no, 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 you know, a lot of times, oh, how many customers do you have? I have 10 POCs. That's amazing. You have 10 paying customers. No, 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 I have 10 POCs. What do you mean? Well, they're 10 free POCs. That's terrible. Worst ever. Free POC, I don't want to hear about it. Why? Human nature you bring me some amazing thing. You're like super excited about it. And this is an amazing new product. And will you use it? Oh yeah, sure. What am I going to say? No, Jubin, sorry. That looks terrible. No, human nature is a lot easier for me to say yes. Now I'm not going to invest anything in that. I'm not going to put any money or time in that. If it's some free thing, I'm like, whatever. And you're going to come back and be like, Hey, how's it going? You're like, great. Are you using my thing? No, I'm not using anything. Oh, why not? Well, next month. Meanwhile, you're, you think you're doing great because you got 10 free POCs. No one's using anything. No one's committed separating someone from their wallet is the hardest thing there is to do. And you're really going to learn a lot when you have someone's money. 
And so you go, oh yeah, well actually you have to pay for that, it's $10,000. They're gonna be like, whoa, 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 whoa. And you're like, what do you mean, whoa? You're not getting $10,000 of value out of that? Well, we should talk about that because I'm gonna try and sell this to 10,000 people. So what would be valuable? Oh, if you did this and this and this and this, these other things, and then you figure out return on investment, total cost of ownership, time to value, opportunity cost, all the rest of it, you can start to build a business around that. And by the way, if they invest and they do a $10,000 POC, their boss is going to ask them, hey, what's this line item for like Jubin's new company that you have on the budget this month? Oh yeah, that's this super important thing I'm trying to do. They're going to have to justify it. They're going to have to get invested in it. They're going to put their own people on it because they have to show some return to their boss on the $10,000 they just spent. The whole thing starts to go. But if you sit there and you don't convince anyone to pay, this is a particular, obviously, for business-to-business software, right? It's a little bit different consumer where there's freemium models or there's trials or all the rest of it. There can be trials, and I'm okay with trials, but there has to be something where it says, you're going to do this 30-day POC, and when it works, you're going to pay me $10,000. That's got to be in the contract, and that's very, very important. And it is uncomfortable for many people to ask other people for money. I totally get that. But as a founder of a technology company, in particular an enterprise-focused one, you have to learn how to do that. So it's interesting because that's not conventional wisdom today. The vogue term is product-led growth. Product-led growth fundamentally means that you do not charge for it. That is actually like implicit in the name of it. Yeah. You disagree? Well, I mean, that's fine. Product-led growth is fine and companies have done very well. Show me a company that is successful at large enterprise software and has successfully created a multi-billion dollar business with product-led growth. And I'll show you someone that maybe had product-led growth, but it became hybrid and then they got into the enterprise sales motion. I agree. I agree. So like Slack is a great example. Started as bottoms up. Then over time, Stuart realized probably around the 10 to 20 million ARR mark, shit, what are we doing? We've got a layer outbound. That's right. Yeah. So, so I have no problem with that. Okay. But understand that at some point you're going to want to do that. And by the way, I think there is a very good correlation in whatever stock market environment you want to look at of higher value goes to enterprise software companies that sell to larger enterprise. Why? Bigger deals, longer terms, lower churn. I mean, we can go through the list. So that's not to say there's not a lot of value in companies that sell to S&B. It's just a much harder business to grow bigger. It's a leaky bucket. They only do one-year terms. Small companies go out of business and so forth and so on. So I think there's a lot of value to selling in the enterprise. All right. I'm almost done here. And then I got to get you out. I know you've had- Keep a, going. Um, I'm enjoying it. Good. I haven't um, walked out yet. Okay. That's true. I haven't been walked out on yet. So maybe this is my first, you know, now that you've had a podcast. Well, you shouldn't, have, bring, meeting, you shouldn't have brought meeting, that up. This is going to be my first podcast. As, a, that I as an innovator up. and an entrepreneur, <laughs> I might want to introduce <laughs> you to the concept of someone walking out. Oh man. All right. So a couple more questions. One, this is going to sound weird. The stock is down 70%. Is Freddie down 70%? Is so much of you caught up in this thing that it's like, fuck. You're just consumed by like, oh my God. Does your meter adjust proportionally to the stock price, octa price? I mean, it would be crazy to say that I'm not paying attention. Yeah. But if you had bought our stock at IPO, you still have a 500% return over five yep. years today. So- Obviously, the stock's down and employees who have stock options or who got RSU packages at higher uh, prices, there's certainly some challenges there that we're working through that, by the way, all of our peers are yep. working through at the same time. You know, it's a good thing, by the way, that it's not just Okta that's singled out, but the definitely the environment of, you know, interest rates and the macro environment and all the rest of it has obviously impacted all high growth software. And the pendulum right now has swung in the public markets from high growth to profitability, and it'll swing back at some point. 
The good news for us is, number one, if you invested and you're holding for the long term, you're in great shape. I'm certainly not selling any stock right now. Number two, if you invested five years ago, you'd be up 500%, which I feel pretty good about. Number three, we're in a very big market that's growing fast, where we're still in great shape. We're number one. I mean, there's $80 billion of total addressable market. And, you know, the serviceable addressable market is some big piece of that as well. It's only a billion and a half revenue company growing 50% year over year. So regardless of what happens in the public stock markets, the only two days that stock price matters are the day you buy and the day you sell. And so what we tell everyone who's been joining Okta forever is you're buying low and you're going to sell high. So now's the time, a good time to hold. By the way, now's a good time to go from a private company to a public company like Okta because you're going to get the stock at a discount. <laughs> and then two years from now, when it's changed again, you're going to be in great shape. So yeah, I mean, of course you have to pay attention to it. It's hard not to. It's a ticker on my phone. But at the same time, if you have a good business that's set up for the long term and you have that perspective, I think it's going to be just fine. Let me ask you this. Yeah. Like you do your own angel investing. I do. Okay. Is it weird as we're going through the correction? And I think over the last three to four months, people's psyche has started to change towards the reality of what the market is telling us now. But was it weird when Okta's price bottomed out, you're trading, I say bottomed out, like it's trading at 12X or whatever, whatever it is, right? 12, I think it's- Less than that. Less than that. For 12 months? Yeah. I don't know, seven, eight times, four, okay. 12 months. right? And it's one of the best businesses in the world. Yeah. And it's trading at that multiple. Yeah. And then you're investing in private companies. Yeah. And they're, you know, they want 10, 20X, that would be like a pretty good round. In I was going like, to say, that's, that's like a, pretty, we that's were, a cheap round. We were around 100x right, right, six right. months ago. That's what I mean. Because you have, you're sitting in both seats here, right? Yeah. Like, are you kind of looking at that and be like, oh my, Not at should all. I be buying more Octa shares? No, first of all, I own a lot of Octa shares and I'm a very happy shareholder. So that's number one. Number two, and I'm not planning to sell any. Number two, not at all. I mean, the future of the world is going to be more and more reliant on technology and software. For sure, for the next 10, 20 years, certainly in my professional career. So even if you're investing at a 10 or 20X for 12 months, and even if things get worse, I'm not buying this stock to sell it in three months. I'm buying it and putting it in the drawer for five years. And five years from now, some of these companies are going to be amazing companies. Five years from now, I mean, you know, I can't comment on Octa stock as a Section 60 officer of the company, but I think we're going to be in good shape too. So yeah, I mean, some of it you look at, but also we're, you're taking a bet. Your early stage enterprise software investing is also taking a bet. You're taking a bet on an entrepreneur and you're taking a bet on a market, just like people took a bet on us as entrepreneurs and a market. And the market wasn't even there. It wasn't even clear for a number of years. So I do, but I'm good with it. There's an amazing lesson that you shared in the book that I don't think enough entrepreneurs do. And the way that you defined it, which I thought was very clever, was sharpening the contradictions. Do you know what I'm talking about? I do. Can you tell the audience, what you mean by that. Yeah, that is actually, I give credit to Ben Horowitz, who was our first investor, became a board member in February of 2010 and is still the lead independent director on our board. Ben is really good at that. And a lot of times when you're having a important, involved conversation about an, a key topic, people are not crystal clear on what the options are and the alternatives are and why they should do them and what the upside and downside is. And Ben has a magical way of getting to the heart of the topic very quickly and being very clear on exactly that, sharpening the contradictions. What's going on? 
what are the problems, how are you going to define them, and how are you going to get through them, and what the options are, and what those options are going to cost you. And that's a very hard thing to do. Still, I don't think I'm amazing at it, but it's a very important thing to do. Last one. What is the ball bearing award at Okta? The ball bearing award. So for those of you, and I'm actually not a skateboarder, but for those of you who are skateboarders out there, you know the ball bearings are the uh, little balls that sit inside the wheels and that basically makes the casing turn. And really good ball bearings make it so there's no friction inside the casing. A lot of times what I had seen in my career before Okta, and even a little bit at Okta, to be honest, is the squeaky wheel gets the grease. Whoever is complaining more gets more salary, or whoever is yelling more gets a better patch, or whoever's making a lot of noise tends to get whatever they're looking to get. And the people who are doing a lot of hard work, but maybe are not as vociferous or not as loud or not as visible, tend to not get as much credit. And we wanted to flip that on its head because most of the time, the people doing all the amazing work, they almost go unnoticed. They do such a good job. And it's like a ball bearing. It just runs super smoothly, super quietly, and it lubricates the entire system. And without them, nothing moves. And certainly, you know, your wheels on your skateboard are not moving at all. And so we created this concept of the ball bearing awards probably a decade ago now. And we give them out to folks who get a ton done never make any noise, always keep the motion going, typically don't have a bunch of awards sitting on their desks, but are actually so key and critical to the company that if they stop being so amazing, you would know about it. Things would start to slow down. Very cool. By the way, these are golden lessons for our entrepreneurs. And honestly, a lot of the way I spend my day is trying to impart some of the wisdom that I learned from folks like you just give them this freaking book by the end of this. But there's some things in here that I'm like, I sent a bunch of pictures to people in our portfolio to our CEOs. Like, remember this thing that we talked about? Yep. Look, look, it's right here. Yep. Like, it's right here. One of the things that you said is in the early days, the important business expertise wasn't general management. It was sales and marketing. Basically, when you're talking about co-founders or in the early days, what you're looking for in that early business hire is not a GM of biz ops. It is someone that has a skill in sales and marketing. Is that what you were saying? I don't remember, but if I did say that, that sounds really smart. (laughs) I mean, look, again, it's back to what we said, right? Which is one of the three rules. Nothing happens until somebody sells something. I mean, there's no operations to run. There's nothing to set up until you actually have a business going. And there's no business going until there's revenue coming in. The point of a business is to sell things to other people. And so you can get all the help you want. And certainly you don't want to fall too far behind in general and administrative and operations and finance because then if your business really takes off, you're going to have a lot of catch up to do. And sometimes you don't get around to catching up. And But you need to focus first on being as close to the revenue funnel as possible. Because if there's no revenue coming in, there's nothing to pay anyone. <laughs> there's not going to be a business for a long time. Getting an understanding of how to find the customer, how to identify the customer, how to attract the customer, how to get the customer up and running, successful, repeat, or whatever your business is, that's the most important thing when it comes to actual business. Unfortunately, things like healthcare and payroll and all these other taxes that are incurred by startups are necessary. So it's not unfortunate that they're necessary. It's unfortunate that they take so much work in today's world. And I know that there are now service providers who do this as a package and a bundle and all the rest of it. You have to do that. Obviously, people have to get paid and they have to have health insurance, but it can consume a lot of cycles. And remember, 
Time is your most precious asset. And if you are fortunate enough to get any money from Kleiner Perkins or any of the other illustrious venture capital firms out there, there's basically a fuse on that money. It is meant to be spent within 12 or 18 or 24 months. I understand you want to extend the runways in these days, but in general, they are in the business, you, Kleiner Perkins, are in the business of returning money to your LPs, and there is a limited amount of time on your fund and all the rest of it. So you have to put that money to work, and you got to get out there and start building your company as quickly as you can. I have another observation that I had a couple of days ago. In around 2017, when did the company go public? 2016? 2017. 2017. April 7, 2017. Okay. Maybe this is coincidence. You tell me. In 2017 and then beyond, you became the chairman and co-founder of Herophilus. You started the Operator Network in 2019. You started doing a bunch of shit. A lot of things that were outside of Okta. Outside of Okta, you know what I mean. Outside of your day job in Okta. Up till that point, there wasn't a lot of other things that you were doing. The book, Blackstone, all these things. I asked your coach, when did you start working with Freddie? 2018, your professional coach. So I started asking myself, is that a coincidence? In my experience, I would think a coach would come into your life when you need help, when you need a support system, when there's more that you need beyond yourself. And then I start seeing you doing all of these other things in your life. Maybe I'm just creating a movie script that doesn't exist here. Is there a there to that? Zero to IPO the movie. <laughs> um, look, I think that- uh, What do you think would play you? Someone told me Michael Keaton. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. Um, so, uh, well, first of all, I just like doing all those things. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm good at starting things and getting them going and helping people do that. In fact, we started, you talk about glutton for punishment. We started Herophilus the month I took Octa Public. I don't know why. That's just how it happens. We should separate those two things. So separate the coaching from all those other things. I think all those other activities, first of all, they're all related. It's all entrepreneurial work. It's all helping build future software companies, helping other entrepreneurs starting to give back to the system. I benefited a lot from entrepreneurs who were ahead of me in the journey as we built Okta. And so if nothing else, I wanted to start to pay that favor back and help other entrepreneurs. As it turns out, I'll put my money where my mouth is and I'm happy to angel invest in these companies. As it turns out, the Opera Network is a perfect example. There's a lot of other amazing people who I can bring into these companies who are going to help the entrepreneurs who also want to angel invest. And by the way, going to give me a better chance at success with my money. So that's how we built the Operator Network. The Trust Center for Entrepreneurship, MIT, is an amazing place. So that's an easy one. I always try and do as much as I can with MIT. You know, Herophilus and neurodegenerative Alzheimer's, Rett syndrome, those seem like pretty good ways to spend my time. So if you go through it, like each of them individually, but I would also say that doing those other things has empowered me to stay involved at Okta longer because it has gotten my entrepreneurial itch scratched while I'm still building Okta. And that's been a big deal. We went public. It was a $200 million business. It's a billion and a half revenue business today. So certainly I feel like I've continued to contribute significantly at Okta during the last five years as a public company. But I've also been able to do all these other things that have allowed me to stay focused. That's the first piece. The second piece is the coach. I just needed someone to help me think someone who has gone through a lot of these things and he has helped me think about how to organize and prioritize across all those different objectives and in my personal life and just simplify. Very much like sharpening the contradictions that Ben Horowitz does. Ed Haddon does the same thing. 
and really can be very insightful with just like 60 minutes of catch up. He'll be like, these seem like the three big things. And you're like, geez, I'm looking at this whole puzzle. And those are not, that's not the signal from the noise. And allowing me to remember what the signal is so that I can work on it is super helpful. Do you do a good job staying present in your life? Like, are you actively engaged in the things that you're doing? One of the, the features or bugs that I have seen in task-oriented doers, people that are entrepreneurial spirits, is that they're always looking ahead as opposed to engaged right here. Do you feel like you do a pretty good job of staying right here? I probably could do a better job. I probably could do a better job. I've been thinking a lot more about that. You know, a good example is I will take elastic bands, the kind that come with your mail, and I'll put them on and I'll write something on them. So for example, when I go to an important event like I did last Saturday night, I flew down for my friend's 50th birthday party in Los Angeles and I got to go for like six hours or whatever with my wife. And I wrote on the elastic band as we were traveling down there, be here now. So that when I was at the event, I could look at that and kind of remember, hey, this is a huge deal. And I turned around, there was like, you know, 12 of my best friends were all there and everyone had gathered and it was an amazing thing. And, you know, six hours later, I was like, I was gone again. So it is hard. I am conscious. I am aware of the fact that I could probably do a better job and I'm trying to find ways to do that. Actually, it's interesting that you say that that is a common bug in uh, entrepreneurial mindsets. Yeah, it's an affliction that I face every day. So um, maybe the last question, what's the red thing in your hand? Oh, it's a, a ribbon. When I was three years old, my mom tied a velvet ribbon around the neck of whatever stuffed animal I had. And so when I'm trying to think and concentrate and focus, I will just move this velvet ribbon around. I've got them all over the place. You just carry them with you. Oh uh, yeah, they're all over the place. They're planted in my car, they're at home, they're next to my bed, they're under my pillow, they're <laughs> next to the TV. So whenever I'm trying to just like let my mind relax and focus on what we're doing, I need my body to be busy doing something else. Wow. Yeah. Well, for those listening, pick up the book, All Proceeds Go to Charity. It is truly unbelievable. It's not even the Freddy show, which actually blew my mind. It is a bunch of really amazing lessons that I see entrepreneurs face pretty much every day. Congratulations. Like, it's really, really great. Where do you get it? Amazon? You can get it on Amazon. Like you said, all the uh, profits are going to two amazing charities, Build, which is a national one here in the United States, and the Hidden Genius Project, which is located here in Oakland in my backyard, that help black male youth and youth from under-resourced communities stay in school using leadership and entrepreneurship, which is something everyone can get behind. So Amazing, man. I always end the same way. First, is Okta hiring? Actually, like, I don't actually know if they are, but is Okta hiring generally? If so, are there any key roles that you're thinking about? Anything that is a pain in your ass that you really need someone to help fill today? Absolutely. Every single role. We're hiring hundreds and hundreds of people every quarter. Please come and join us. Okta.com slash careers. We'd love to have you. Okay, good. And then last question. What does the word grit mean to you? I mean, it is a key characteristic that every entrepreneur needs to have. It means resilience. It means determination. It means hard work. And, you know, when the going get tough, the tough get going. And there will be tough times. There are always tough times. I've had tough times this week. But you got to uh, work through it. And I think you will feel better afterwards. I think you're the embodiment of it, man. Thank you. Appreciate it, Freddie. Thank you very much for having me. That's it. Thanks for listening. If you're just discovering the podcast, we have a lot more episodes from organizations like Snowflake, Twilio, Slack, LinkedIn, Box, etc. 
If you want to keep up or support the show, the best way to do so is by following us on Spotify, subscribing on Apple, and leaving a review. Also, we love feedback, so feel free to email us, grit at kleinerperkins.com.